By now, you're in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15 is where we're going to pitch our tent this morning. You know, a, um, a author, an author and minister by the name of Fleming Rutledge, uh, uh, she's a, a, a Episcopalian minister, um, she spoke many advents ago about one of the many tragic stories that took place on September the 11th. September the 11th, 2001, that is. And we all know that date. It is, it is seared in our memories. Uh, this particular story that she mentions was told through the eyes of a fire chief on duty that day. Uh, fire Chief Oreo J. Palmer. And this is how uh, the 9-11 memorial website captures his heroics on 9-11. Quote, on September the 11th, after taking an elevator to the 41st floor, Palmer climbed 37 flights of stairs with approximately 50 pounds of gear and made it to the South Tower Sky Lobby on the 78th floor. He is one of the few reported first responders able to make it, make it that far up. He reported via radio out of breath and gasping, Battalion 7, Ladder 15, we've got two isolated pockets of fire. We should be able to knock it down with two lines. 78th floor, numerous, 1045 code 1s, talking about victims. According to the 9-11 Commission report, uh, the website continues, Palmer and his team freed a group of civilians who were trapped in an elevator one minute before the tower collapsed at 9.59 a.m. Following his death, the FDNY named its fitness test after Palmer. Palmer, along with so many others on that day, died in that South Tower, collapsed from the damage, or, or the South Tower collapsed from the damage caused by hijacked planes crashing into the World Trade Center. And this is how one New York Times reporter captures those final moments. He says, at 9.56, Chief Palmer reported what he saw. Many people hurt, many people dead, some fire that could be managed. His matter-of-fact report leaves to the imagination with the arrival of a fire and a fire marshal with more help on the way must have meant to the people still alive on that floor. They had been trapped for nearly an hour, and in their final two minutes, they could behold the promise of deliverance. And that's how the article ends. In the final two minutes, they could behold the promise of deliverance. And then just like that, annihilation. And Fleming Rutledge tells this story, and she says that this story is actually indeed an Advent story. And she says, and she asked the question, or she anticipates the question that's being asked of her, why is this an Advent story? And she says, because the promise and the death blow arrives at the same time. The moment of deliverance and the moment of annihilation are overlaid. This is Advent. The simultaneous arrival of the promise and 
the death blow. Matthew 11 is a a lot like that. It is simultaneous arrival of the promise and the death blow. Last Sunday, we had the opportunity to speak of the one called John the Baptist. And we learned that this John the Baptist was the one that was charged with preparing the way for the Savior's arrival. And, for, and, 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 and so for that reason, I believe it is safe to say that this is about as Advent as it comes, Matthew 11. Because in Matthew 11, you have this one who has prepared for the Savior's arrival now in jail, imprisoned, wondering, where is this Savior? Is this man that he has prepared all of his life for, is he who he thought he was? It is a reminder that while the light that is Christ Jesus has come into the world, we are still in the process of waiting for the complete fulfillment of his promise at his second arrival. You see, brothers and sisters, for now, the darkness is still prevalent. So the promise is present, but so are the death blows. The death blows are present. And the process of waiting and preparing in the midst of the steady death blows can be one that naturally leads one to doubt. This is John's dilemma. And on more occasions than many of us care to count, if we're honest with ourselves, it is ours as well. Picking up in verse 2 of Matthew 11, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by the disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? See, John is asking a question of doubt, but notice where this question comes from. Again, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, Why, after all that John knows about Jesus, why is it that he is doubting now? Because John heard about the deeds of Jesus from prison. The promise is clouded by a death blow of suffering. You see, our doubts of the promise are most clearly evident when we are when we personally, rather, are the ones being dealt the death blow. We certainly have a tendency to struggle when we have to observe strangers struggling, but it is far more prevalent when we ourselves or someone near us are the ones struggling. John can't see God at work because his own struggle has clouded his vision in this moment. John is here in prison saying, okay, sure, people are being healed, people are being delivered, people are being set free, but when am I getting out of prison? If you are the one that I've waited for and you are the one that I've prepared for, then why am I here? Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever said to yourself, yeah, sure, some of my friends are, they're getting awesome new promotions, but Lord, when are you going to come through and just provide me with a stable job and stable income? 
Sure, yeah, my sister and her husband, they, my, my brother and, and his wife, they were blessed by you to celebrate umpteen years of marriage. But, Lord, when are you going to come through and allow me just to find a decent prospect? Yes, Lord, sure. I praise you for the vaccination discovery of the, for the coronavirus. But why did we have to lose 300,000 people in nine months before we found it? Yes, you're telling me that he's working, but it is hard for me to believe it because I'm not seeing him working in my life. And that's the, the dilemma John is faced with in this text. Here's another dilemma. The death blow of suffering, but the death blow of expectations. John has literally dedicated his entire life up to this point to preparing the way for the arrival of the Savior the Bible says that John leapt in his mother's womb at the sound of Jesus' mother's voice. John's father said, that, said this concerning the time of John's birth. He says this in Luke chapter 1, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." This was John's purpose in life. This was John's reason for existing, to usher in Jesus and his ministry. And he did that. And then he was taken and thrown in prison. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not how John envisioned this as, he was, as this was playing through his mind growing up. In fact, John has come preaching repentance, saying things like Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is expecting justice. He's expecting justice, as the prophet Amos once said, justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And instead, the very opposite happens for him. Injustice happens for John. He speaks truth to power and tells Herod that he cannot have another man's wife. And, and as a result, he is thrown in jail and ultimately executed. John expects justice upon the arrival of the Messiah, and instead he is given injustice, the injustice of a world that's still blanketed in darkness even as the light has arrived. Can anybody listening to this relate to this? As you look back on life and the, and the moment that, that you got saved, you realize that it was at that moment in many cases that you started being dealt the death blows. As you look back on it, you say to yourself, I wasn't even sick until I got saved. I didn't even have family problems until I got saved. I didn't even have marriage problems until I got saved. You gained Christ, but then you started suffering in your body. 
You gain Christ, but then you started suffering in your relationships. You gain Christ, but then you started suffering financially. You know, sometimes it can feel like when we gain Christ, we lose other things. And this can really sting for us, especially when we believe that gaining Christ was going to be the step that solved all the problems in our lives. You see, if our expectations for right now are skewed, we have no chance of surviving the inevitable struggles that this life will bring. John 16, 31 through 33, it says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Verse 32, he says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then he says this in verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says this life is going to carry with it its shares of struggles. Scripture tells us that the darkness is, is passing away, but the darkness has not passed away. It is passing away. It, is, it has not passed away to the, to the point where we are no longer impacted by it. We see these reminders of darkness everywhere. We see them in this pandemic, again, that has now killed 300,000 Americans and 1.6 million people worldwide in this past year. We see them in this country that grows more divided by the day, increasingly taken captive by lies and misinformation about ourselves and about others. We see these reminders over and over again with people in our lives who reject the light and reject the righteousness of God and reject the joy and the hope and the peace that comes from Christ in favor of brokenness and bitterness and anger and malice and envy and addiction. These are all reminders to us that Christ has indeed come into the world, but he is still yet to come again. And until he does, the fullness of his work is yet to be fully realized. It's why Jesus encourages us and urges us that when we pray, we should pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's why we are urged and encouraged to cry out often, Maranatha, come Lord, quickly. It's because what's here is not right yet. There is still darkness, even as light is piercing through. Advent is the reminder that we are still living in between those two realities. The death blows of suffering and expectation can cause even the best of us to lose sight of that. The best of us like John the Baptist. I say John the Baptist being the best of us because, because just the very fact that he is doubting is a story in and of itself. We'll come back to verses 4 and 6, but for now, look at verses 7 through 15. It says, and as you're thinking about verses 7 through 15, John is asking questions about the nature of Jesus' role. He's saying, are you the promised one or should we look for another? 
You know, it would have been real easy to cast him to the side in our story when he says something like that, to write him off as weak or fumbling in his faith at this point. But Jesus leaves us no room. And we see that in the next, ver uh, next few verses. In verse 7, he says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, saying, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus here makes something abundantly clear to us. If you're going to use John's questioning as a, as a grounds to demonstrate his spiritual weakness, you're missing the point. He is not a frail reed, Jesus says, that's shaken by the winds of suffering or expectations. He is not daintily dressed, indicating some sort of fragility. He is not easily breakable. John is a man's man. Before this moment, he was in the wilderness, camel skin as his garments and, and, wild, and, and locusts and wild honey as his food. He's not weak. This question isn't coming from a delicate soul. It is coming from a very strong and resilient soul. In fact, Jesus continues in verse 9, and he says this, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is... At who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. With John asking questions about Jesus' true nature right now, one might be tempted to ask, so is John a true prophet? To that question, Jesus answers, without question. In fact, he is more than a prophet. He is the prophet who is fulfilling prophecy. He is the one that the prophet Malachi spoke of centuries ago, saying, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is clearing up any misconceptions that one might have about John's bona fide character in the midst of this doubtful question. He's clearing up any misconceptions that we might have about his strength, or he's clearing up any misconception that, that we might have about his bona fides as a prophet when he asks the question, are you the one, or should we send for another? When we look at men like John the Baptist, we tell ourselves they're way too strong to struggle with doubt like you and I do. But that's a dangerous misconception. You see, the strongest Christians amongst us are subject to doubt as long as we live in between the two advents, the first arrival of Christ and the second arrival of Christ. There are certainly moments when the question will come to our hearts, are you the one or should we look for another? So he says John is not a delicate man. John is not only a prophet, but he is a prophet that was prophesied about and, that, and he is a prophet who is fulfilling prophecy. But listen to the last description again that Jesus gives of John. He says this in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus says, among natural men, John is one of the goats, one of the greatest of all time. Never let it be said of a Christian that has moments of struggle that it is simply because they are lesser than other Christians. This is what Spurgeon says about the Christian who wrestles with doubt. Quote, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. End quote. Brothers and sisters, doubt is not abnormal. As human beings that are fallible, as human beings that see in part and know in part, the idea that we can sometimes wonder, what are you doing, Lord, shouldn't be shocking to any of us. So John struggles with what exactly is Christ doing in this moment. But it does not mean John is somehow not a real Christian. It simply means that John is a human one. Wrestling with the already, not yet, of the kingdom. Wrestling with living in between the, the Lord's first coming and the Lord's second coming. Wrestling with living in the reality that darkness is still present even as light is breaking through. In fact, J.C. Ryle says this about doubt. He says, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. This leads to my last point for the morning. What do we do when we doubt? What do we do when we doubt? Well, we realize that we are in need of help. We realize we are in need of help, and we look for that help. First, we look for the help that comes from God's word, his holy revelation. Look at what Jesus does for John in this text. Going back to verse 4, Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news, good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus comes back to John or he sends back to John. And he says, when you go back and you talk to John, Tell them that I am fulfilling prophecy just like I always said I would do, just like he prepared for me to do. Tell them that the prophecies that go back seven, eight, nine, ten centuries ago are being fulfilled in me. Tell them that the blind that had never received their sight before me are now seeing. Tell, me, tell them that the lame that were not walking before I arrived are now walking. Tell them that the lepers 
who were isolated and ostracized before my arrival are now being cleansed and being accepted back into community. Tell them that the deaf that could not hear the proclamation of my word, that could not hear his own proclamation to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, can now hear as it is declared. And tell them that the dead are being raised up and being made alive both physically and spiritually. Tell them that the poor are having the good news of the gospel preached to them. Tell them that I am doing everything that was promised I would do. You know, sometimes we have to go back to, in the moments where the darkness seems to be blanketing our perception of the light, we have to go back to God's word and remember the promises and realize that even in the midst of dark moments, the promises are still being fulfilled. God is still doing the things that he always said that he would do, namely and primarily saving you. Sometimes when you lose sight of, of, of the light because of all the darkness in this world and the, 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 the racial and civil unrest and the, and the chaos in terms of pandemic and the chaos in terms of sin and just reckless living, sometimes I need to go back to the very foundation that I began with. God saved me. He changed me. When there was nothing but darkness, he breathed life and light into me through his son. That alone gives me confidence that he is still working. When I go back and I look at the word, I have to remind myself that God is still moving. That's what the word is for. That's what his words are for. And so thus we must go back to it routinely and daily to refresh our hope in him. So we remember the words of God and we re remember the works of God. But then also there's something that Jesus does not say. Because Jesus is speaking from the prophetic words of Isaiah here. One of the things that he leaves out is talking about the captives being set free. And instead he gives John the words, blessed is he or the one who is not offended by me. In so many ways, Jesus is saying, I'm doing what I promised I would do, but now is not yet the time for the light to be fully realized in this world. There is still brokenness. There is still persecution. There is still tribulation. There is still hurt. And some of you, even you, John, will be on the brunt end of that hurt. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me means blessed is the one who can trust me even in the midst of the darkness. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me means blessed is the one who can still trust that I am the one who God, whom God the Father has sent even when you have to do so from a prison cell. 
Blessed is the one who is not offended by me is saying, blessed is the one who can trust that I am the one that God the Father has sent, even when you have to do it from your, from your bed as a result of being bed-stricken. Even when you have to do it from broken relationships. Even when you have to do it from financial struggles. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me means, Lord, I will trust you even as I wrestle in the darkness. Jesus is saying, return back to my word. There you will find help for the doubt. But Jesus is also saying, return, return back to the reality that you are still living in a dark and cold world. This world is not your home. The fullness of the, of the, or the completed work is not yet being manifested. And so you still have to trust me here. And that will help your doubt. When you realize that, okay, Lord, it's crazy here, but yet I trust you. Last thing. Verse, uh, chapter 9 of Mark, verse 21. It talks about uh, a father seeking help for his child. Verse 21, it says, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Did you hear that? I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, continue so forth and so on. What's happening here? What's happening here? My last point in terms of what help can you, or not what help, but how can you battle your doubt? Number one, you remember the words of God. Number one, you remind yourself that this world is not my home, that, 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 this dark, that yes, there is darkness still present, yet, and light is bursting through, but the light has not been fully realized. Number three, you ask the Lord for help in your doubt. Jesus says to this man, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And this man tells Jesus plainly, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus does not respond to this man. Well, you don't have enough faith. Sorry, you're going to have to depart. There's nothing I can do for you in this moment. Jesus helps the man's unbelief. You see that? I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. And Jesus does that. He helps the man's unbelief. 
and he heals this man's son. How often in the midst of your doubt do you ask the Lord for help to believe? How often when you're struggling with everything that's going on around you, whether it be finances, whether it be, whether it be the, the, the pandemic, whether it be uh, the, the isolation that has come through the pandemic, no matter what, how many times have you asked, actually asked the Lord to help you in your unbelief? The Lord gives grace. Even grace for doubt, if we ask. And so here's this man, John. He is one of the goats, and yet he struggles. And so that should serve as a clear reminder to you that, yes, it is okay for you to struggle. But it is not okay for you to stay there. When you struggle. Go to your God. When you struggle, ask the Lord to remind you of the works of Jesus Christ. The fact that he did go to a real cross. The fact that he did die a real death. The fact that he did spill real blood for real sinners like you and like me. Ask the Lord to remind you of that. Go to your word and rehearse the promises of God to yourself. But lastly, go to your God and pray and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray. God, we love you.